0: Smart Counsel is a joint production of Multnomah University Alternative Behavioral Therapy and New Pattern Counseling. Joshua Moore is a counselor at Alternative Behavioral Therapy in Vancouver, Washington, who specializes in neurofeedback and trauma. Reese Pasimio is a counselor at New Pattern Counseling in Gresham, Oregon, who specializes in addictions, sexuality, gender, and spirituality. Thanks for listening and for joining the conversation. Welcome to Smart Counsel sex, adjudication, and advocacy. Smart Counsel provides perspectives and resources for providers and students on spirituality, mental health, addictions, relationships, and trauma. I'm Reese coming to you abnormally from Colorado Springs, Colorado. I am far from home, high up in the mountains, and I'm here with my very special guest, Zach Guzman. How are you doing, Zach? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm glad that this worked out. So for the listening pleasure of our listeners, how do we know each other?
1: We, well, that's a good question. We were just talking about this the other day. We met at a, a park in Flagstaff, Arizona, when I believe your mom approached my mom about a business perspective. I
0: think, but that was like when we were 10. Personally. When we were 10. Yeah. Yeah. And so. then discovered we had a lot in common and then had a gap of like ten years where we didn 't talk, and then when we got back together, we realized, oh wow, we 're both in like counseling and social work fields because we're sort of the same person
1: so yeah that that was interesting how yeah. how much time has passed, and then reaching back out to you finding out that you, well, I knew because I'd followed you on Facebook right, and I'd seen, oh how ironic that we ended up doing the same thing For essentially.
0: Sure. which so so i had so I did my private practice in the Pacific Northwest in. Gresham Morgan, and I do a lot of focused work with addictions, uh, sex and porn addiction in particular. I do a lot of focused work with gender sexuality, uh, a lot of LGBT-specific work as well. Do you tell me, Zach, what is it that you do in this field? What's what's your corner of the mental health field? So
1: I work for a local foster care agency that specializes in a trauma-informed approach for the foster families we work with and the children that they bring into their home. A lot of the focus is on a trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy approach with more recently an emphasis on the EMDR protocol. And we serve young children, teens, adults, really run the gamut, but the specialty of the agency is really children. In addition to that, we have a program for individuals who've been adjudicated for sexual offenses, youth specifically. So the providers on our team are specifically youth SOMB providers, sex offense management board providers, which is governed by the SOMB. And we are required to maintain that credential through ongoing education annually, because there's so much research that comes out each year and we must stay abreast of all the latest information. So there's a lot of different roles that I hold, but um, I do family therapy, group therapy, individual therapy, couples therapy. Okay. So you do it all. I do it all. It just depends on what comes up during the assessment phases, which sometimes, as you know, can take a good month to figure out. It can take some time for sure. And you're an LCSW? I'm working on the LCSW. I have uh, the MSW and I know that it's not really popular credential to have, but I'm just a registered psychotherapist on door. <laughs> I I just gotta pass that exam and then I'm and then I have one year left of the supervision. So that equates to um, you know, fifty six just shy of fifty six weeks more of supervision to have the hours underneath my belt
0: for your first for your lcsw for the lcsw yeah. yeah so which i would push back on that being like kind of an unpopular uncommon degree <laughs> i mean at least where i come from there's social workers everywhere and they're wonderful amazing people they probably hold the city together so okay it's good work that you do i'm glad that you're doing it so so you're working with an agency that works with uh, foster care works with families with couples and in particular you're with the sex offender management board?
1: Yes. I'm an SOMB approved uh, treatment provider for adolescents.
0: Yes. What brought you to this work?
1: You mean the, the offense specific work particularly?
0: Yeah. What's your, what's your interest? I'll be honest.
1: It kind of followed me. Okay. I didn't have any intent in working with this specific population out of grad school. My first job was working as a school social worker in an alternative school, well, a residential treatment facility that had a day treatment program. So the emphasis was that treatment was provided for these kids that were just failing out of the traditional public school model. And so we we provided an emphasis on the treatment. When I, when I left that job to continue my education, I found Kids Crossing and they said, hey, would you be interested in... Being an offense-specific provider, this had been approached to me three different times at my previous workplace, and I had said, "No, not interest, not interested." Uh, but I found myself doing groups anyway, not as an SOMB provider at the time, but just doing healthy sexuality, which you technically can provide right. even without the credential. And so, when I was approached at the new at the agency I now work for, I just said, "Yeah, why not?" And I've come to find that in more ways than one, this is kind of my niche. I really enjoy the work. It's challenging, but it's super rewarding when you, when you see kind of these outcast individuals find a sense of hope again and, and a reason to continue pushing forward and learning from their mistakes and being given a second chance at life essentially because it really is a there really are a lot of hoops to jump through before you can be officially removed from the registry the sex offense registry.
0: There really are a lot of hoops and a lot of barriers that an individual faces if they're not able to get through them. But for the for the listener who may not know some of the terms that we're throwing out, we're talking about offenses and talking about a registry, maybe could you outline a little bit of what's the process of becoming adjudicated and what does that mean? And like who are these kids that are coming to you and how do they get there?
1: Oh, that's what a loaded question that is. Yes. But I'll try my best here. And I, I can't say that all of what I'm speaking to is completely accurate but i'll say what i've heard and what i've witnessed and observed there's a lot of gray area as to whether or not the department of human services once they've received a complaint by either a parent or a counselor at school or a teacher who is the first responder to hearing the information a lot goes into deciding if they if they follow through age being a big one technically speaking i think you have to be at least 12 years of age but i have seen as young as 10 okay And this is a report about some manner of sexual abuse? Yes. Okay. Yeah, specifically sexual abuse. And I just want to, for the listener, clarify here that when I say sex offense, uh, there are so many different... that that, There's a gamut of different ways on which you can end up on a registry, whether it's indecent exposure, voyeurism, peeping on somebody, and non-consensual situations with very blurred lines consent is perhaps one of the biggest areas in the curriculum that we emphasize to really grasp the concept preferably before entering any type of relationship right um so it's not it's not just when you hear sex offense i think people are thinking rape or their mind, the mind tends to go to the worst case scenario, but a, a lot, I would say a good majority of the youth that I work with were not provided the adequate education within the home. And let's be honest, most sex education programs in the public school deal with the mechanics and the consequences that could be involved if you don't practice safe sex, i.e., condoms. condoms and things. Yeah. yeah. Well, this feels like a really
0: important. to think about too when you're talking about the nuances and the the spectrum of what a sex offense is i feel like that speaks to the nuanced spectrum of what sex is and sexuality we might hear the word sex and right away think intercourse and the mixing of genitals when in reality there's a lot of human interaction that is sexual or at least sexualized or can be erotic anyway and you know genitals are certainly a part of it, but any, any touching of the body, even, you know, eye contact with the body, uh, there can be a sexual component to that and, you know, can also be violating in a way too. So in recognizing that there's a spectrum of sex offenses that and it necessitates that we must understand just how complex and nuanced sex
1: is. That's a great point. I remember early on working with a 17-year-old who was pretty Certain that he had gotten a girl pregnant, and I kind of went with his story up into the point where some of the key points he was making weren't jiving with my understanding of what sex is. <laughs> right. So then I stopped him and I said, Well, let's stop the conversation here and ask, What is sex? Mm-hmm. Well, I slept with this girl. Okay, what would you do? We were naked, sleeping next to each other, and I was shocked. Because it seems like a response that a five, six, seven-year-old might give. And here was a 17-year-old fully functioning, to my awareness, cognitively present for their age, developmentally, but had not ever really had sex education (laughs) and thought that merely sleeping next to a girl naked could result in becoming a father. And so they were coming at me with a bunch of questions. It's when I when I kind of realized, okay, well, what, where are you learning what you're learning? There's more to this specific event, but essentially a lot of the knowledge that the youth I work with are getting their information from is the internet.
0: Right. Which is problematic. And we're going to talk about that in an, in an, in another episode, but you're right. The, the nature in which sex education happens maybe creates its own problems. Sure. Yeah, in any case. A sex offense of some sort happens for someone, for a kid who's ideally at least 12 and gets reported in some case. And then what happens in the process?
1: So once the investigation has occurred, they determine if it's in the best interest of the individual. And again, lots of gray area here. And it comes down to the individual decision making, oftentimes of the caseworker. Uh, obviously, they have to bring. The case before a courtroom and a judge makes the ultimate decision, but if that caseworker really feels strongly about pressing charges, given the material that has come up during the investigation process, they, my experience my observation is that they do hold a lot more weight than they probably should there's a lack of education i feel in the in the courtroom surrounding what the s o m b standards look like, what the research says about this and and so there's a lot of preventative things we could be doing. But back to the point, I keep digressing here. Sorry. Okay. Uh, when they have been adjudicated, there is a, there, that individual is assigned a probation officer, almost immediately assigned either an individual therapist to work individually on the offense-specific work or in a group format. Now, the direction of treatment is definitely leaning more towards the individual treatment. It had originally the adolescent SOMB standards had originally mirrored the adult standards, which are almost always done in a group setting for the purposes of holding each member accountable to one another. But we, we know that developmentally these individuals, these younger people need a bit more guidance. And sometimes there's a lot of fear surrounding opening up and talking about what they've done. There's a lot of shame. There's a lot of guilt and the individual modality is what's been being pushed because it tends to be a little bit more successful. If the individual is appropriate for group and and may benefit from the accountability of group members, they'll they'll be placed in a group environment. And so then probation steps in and has a, a pretty standard set of guidelines. Safety planning is big. So any extracurricular activity, whether it be through school or a family event, must first be signed off on by the treatment provider, by the probation officer, before it can be engaged in. And this is perhaps the most challenging concept for these individuals and their families to grasp and comply with.
0: Right. And I think that's where it's, th- this is the part that I think sounds the most familiar to, to a lot of people when they hear, you know, sex offender or in particular juvenile sex offender, they they might think, oh, you know, high, supervi- high supervision, can't be alone with children, can't be alone, can't be alone with a computer,
1: something like that. Is that kind of a true to life right. image? Right. And, and it'll look at... What, the, what the, each state says, each state has a different set of guidelines and, it's, and it changes as the research does. I believe in Colorado, the current age of consent is 15. Um, but there's a lot of nuances within the law that allow for exemptions with that. Age of consent for? For sex, period. Or, or anything sexual. Okay. When you're looking at a four-year or more difference between the perpetrator and the victim, that's where we're running into safety planning around age-related events. So if, for example, Johnny, who is age 15, wants to regularly go to the YMCA to take up swimming, for example, the chances of him being around individuals who are four years younger than him or greater mm. are pretty high. Yeah. And so there's a lot of safety planning involving him being aware of all his triggers him being aware of anything that might elicit a sexual urge or response to visual stimuli and must include according to probation standards a write-up of what those triggers are and what they will do if in the event in the likely event in this case that they come across that trigger and and so what you, what the process looks like is getting as many adults 18 or older to become informed supervisors for that individual.
0: Oh, okay. So that Johnny can have somebody to go with him to more places right. and people who are not just with him, but know, Hey, these are Johnny's triggers, things to watch out for.
1: Right. And so that sounds like a perfect setup, right? You just get family members to do the informed supervision. Unfortunately, fortunately we work with a lot of single parent households where it is simply mom or simply dad providing the supervision and they fear what, how they will be viewed if they share with a neighbor the details of Johnny's offense uh, and what that will look like for them in terms of judgment or being ostracized from the neighborhood or the community or word getting dispersed out there that their son has done something. So you get a lot of pushback from people saying, I'm, I don't want that responsibility. And sometimes the resources become thin. Hence, the activities and the opportunities to rehabilitate become thin. <laughs> become thin.
0: Yeah, and you were saying that community integration is one of the most important aspects of rehabilitation. Being able to be involved in society, to to see friends, to do activities, because like as as with as in the case of of, of many mental health disorders and behavioral problems and just problems in general, isolation or lack of human contact, lack of healthy relationship, often is a, a risk factor.
1: It's the most empirically sound correlation out there in the offense-specific world, yet as a society, we don't embrace that. The fear of what-if scenarios prevents us from wanting to provide opportunities for this population, and so the number one empirically researched area is not touched on to the degree that it needs to for treatment providers to comfortably sign off on the completion of treatment. You see a lot of isolation continue in that two-year probation period, which I forgot to mention. They have two years to complete. That sounds like a long time. But two years probably goes by pretty quickly. Goes by quickly. The curriculum has quite a few different requirements, and I won't mention them all. Uh, we have the standard healthy sexuality curriculum, which is where we start but then there are things like the polygraph examination that they must be able to pass. It's called a sex history polygraph. And this requires the individual taking the examination to include any sexual experience that they can recall from the earliest age to the present. And I don't know about you, Reese, but as a guy,
0: <laughs>
1: I don't know if I could recall yeah, I don't every know. single sexual experience.
0: Right. I imagine that assignment being difficult for and for an adult to complete. Both the the just awesome uh, and awesome in the sense of terrible the sense of like approaching that sort of oh. disclosure, as well as just that's a lot to think about, mm-hmm. and that's that's a lot of life. That's potentially a lot of orgasms to think about.
1: <laughs> yeah, you know, one of the first trainings that I ever did was introduced by the lecturer an activity was introduced by the lecturer saying, everyone in the room, go ahead and close your eyes. Don't look around. And raise your hand if you are willing to share with me your most recent sexual experience in front of this group. Raise your hand. Come on. Someone, a volunteer, please. (laughs) We don't know if anyone's raising their hand because their eyes are closed, but they do that so that if someone felt comfortable, they would. Then the facilitator just says, everyone open your eyes. Okay, not a single volunteer. That's what it feels like. When you put an individual adjudicated for a sex offense in a room with perfect strangers and say, now tell me about your sex life. Challenges you to put yourself in their shoes to say, how would this feel? Right. So this is what you're starting with. And when the standards were group only, orientation. I could see where that's <laughs> maybe not so trauma informed anymore. Right. <laughs> right. Right.
0: Well, yeah, I'm just struck by all all the difficulties here because a we in in our culture in general we have like these really weird approaches towards sex where it's either it seems like there there there's some who are on this polar opposite side of sex positivity embrace everything talk about everything out loud and proud versus this other extreme of it's shameful we don't talk about it we're scared to talk about it and even in like some of like the more 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 toxic conversations it seems like it's like there's a particular script for, for what sex should be and anything outside of that is looked down upon or or is weird. And so, or it's, it's only okay to talk about in certain contexts. Like it's okay to joke about it on TV, but it's not okay to have a, an actually legitimate serious conversation with your parents about it. Or it's okay to, you know, try to make out with, with, with a peer, but like talking about, talking about it seriously with, with, with an older friend, like would never happen. So then we get to this dynamic where we're saying, okay, you're, you're in trouble now. You're the rest of your life is on the line now open up completely to this strange professional. Yeah. That doesn't seem,
1: that doesn't seem easy. Definitely. No. And, and for, and for a lot of the individuals I'm working with currently and in the past, that is perhaps the biggest hindrance into, in they, that they face in completing the program. So Johnny
0: was originally reported around age 12, goes through the initial hullabaloo of getting getting adjudicated, then is in treatment for maybe two years and doing more individual than group therapy and having to pass polygraphs, talk about their sexual history, have a tr- have a trigger list. Some of that sounds very similar to a relapse prevention plan that I might expect in in an addictions program where you know we'll talk about what are your triggers and what are your triggers to follow your urges in this case it's for drugs or alcohol or, or something else and who are the supportive people who can help you and you know we talk about like what's what's your developmental history and things so I can see some some similarities but but also I also know it's it's very true, and it's a point worth emphasizing, too, that there's a difference between committing a sexual offense and having a sexual addiction, which I know even the term sexual addiction is contended in some circles anyway, you know, a compulsion or out-of-control behavior, but that, but they're not the same thing.
1: Right, right, and I know that you're, you're in the d- addiction world, we, while we do see the... Increased tendency with the younger generations to turn to pornography as a primary source of education for sex. It's not something we spend a whole lot of time on in addressing whether or not it's become a formal addiction. Even though there's not a lot of research indicating that an increase in pornographic viewing would lead to recidivism, it's very much treated like that is the case. And so it's it's a, another challenge in the work is that that our youth who have been adjudicated for sex offense cannot have access to an email account, can't have access to the internet unless it's supervised, cannot go on YouTube, cannot have a Facebook account, cannot do any form of social media, and so they feel further ostracized from. They're peer groups, especially when asked the question, well, why aren't you on Instagram? Why can't I find you on Facebook? And they're put in a position to have to make up, to fabricate right. <laughs> stories to protect themselves. Yeah. Why Why is this, do you think, that
0: a sex offense is handled so much differently than, than other things? Like, you know, we were talking earlier, you were making the point that, you know, someone could physically assault someone or, or verbally assault someone. And have a different consequence or less social stigma. When, as we know, a verbal assault on its own can prompt a person to to a suicide and it can be really dangerous that way. Mm-hmm. But you don't see people committing verbal assault committed to a probation officer in two years of polygraphs. Why do you think sex offenses are handled the way they are compared
1: to others? I'm always asking myself that question. Yeah. The closest I've come, I think, to making sense of it is that each of us are drawn into a specific line of work, probably based on some personal experience. And so with that in mind, if you get a bunch of professionals in the room, each of which have been a victim of sexual abuse, which as you speak with colleagues and get to know that on a more personal level, you start to find out some of this information. And if those traumas are not dealt with first, it's really hard to have an objective um, What's the word I'm looking for here?
0: An objective approach or
1: uh, um, bipartisan?
0: Is that or or impartial? Impartial or bias neutral? Bias or at least, neutral or at least bias aware? Yeah,
1: you'll be, be aware bias, of bias aware is. of of what what you're bringing to the table when you're meeting in the round with all these professionals who are trying to figure out what the next step is for this individual. And, and so my thought that that's the, that's the closest I've come to making sense of it is that if we are not in check with our own mental health and the impact of hearing some pretty strong things from time to time, some pretty explicit things from time to time. Treatment providers with children, myself included in that pool, may respond differently to hearing a four-year-old being victimized by a 12-year-old than we would a 12-year-old being victimized by a 16-year-old. May have a very different response to that. And so that's why it's really important to have a team of treatment providers that you can meet with regularly, which is a requirement. And I really think our agency does a wonderful job at meeting weekly together. There's about seven or eight of us and we'll, we'll bring a case up, have a reaction to what's going on. And one of our colleagues will say, how much of this is you and your stuff and, and and let's be realistic. We, we, we talk a lot about what's the realistic outcome here versus the ideal outcome. Because a lot of, of what happens is when, when a kid, when an individual, a young person has been adjudicated for a sex offense, oftentimes they're removed from their home. They cannot have contact with the victim. And the victim kind of runs the show on when they want to see that person, if they want the clarification letter, which is essentially an apology letter. That's red face to face. They call all the shots, even to the extent of trumping the decision of the parents. So if a victim is old enough to say, I don't want contact with my brother, it does not matter if mom or dad say this would be healing for you if they believe it would be. It's a victim oriented treatment protocol that we have to follow. Right. A complete reversal of power, Mm -hmm. which makes sense. Then you have the treatment providers working with the victims that sometimes don't feel it's ever a good time for reunification to occur. And so what is intended to be a successful reunification and rehabilitation process for both the victim and the perpetrator ends up being an internal separation and disruption of the family system as they once knew it. And so what you end up seeing is a lot of lives affected.
0: A lot of lives affected, some families broken up. And I'm hearing in there how bias is can play a strong role in that or essentially counter transference. They sure do. So yes, essentially, counter. you know, ethics 101, mind your counter transference because you're in the room too. And in this case, you know, you, the professional, not you, my friend, but like, you know, you know, y'all out there professionals, you carry a lot of power into the room with you just by virtue of the fact that you have a credential. And it sounds like if you're not aware of that and you start making decisions for people and their families that will affect the rest of their lives,
1: that things like, things can get pretty screwy pretty fast. Mm-hmm. You find as a therapist in this field that when the team members, probation, guardian ad litem, caseworker, therapist, mom and dad, all enter into the same room, the role of the therapist becomes to covertly facilitate therapy amongst the professionals and the family members so that the process is more constructive than destructive which is a lot of times times what happens in these times types of meetings probation has a very strict ro- uh, very black and white role. you violated probation you looked at pornography throughout the week there has to be a consequence and it's a, it's a, there's a lack of trauma informed lenses being applied to these lives and decisions made out of response to a very black and white system that then the treatment provider has to really be an advocate for the individual. I would say Reese that a a good 90% of the cases we see when it comes down to where they learned about sex or their first sexual experiences and that sex history packet that they're given and required to fill out before the polygraph examination, a good 90% of them have been sexually acted out upon by a family member or someone close and so it's been, it's been introduced to them already that this is how you form a relationship with someone when you're trying to draw close. And the context is oftentimes not a physically violent or painful one. It can be, mm-hmm. but more often than not, it is not. And just so the listeners are aware, I, want, I wanted to put this out there earlier, that the program that we deliver has a very high success rate. That once having graduated from the program, it is, there is a less than 2% chance that the individual will commit the same crime. That's promising. That is promising. But sometimes we treat that statistic like it doesn't exist. Like there's a much higher risk than there actually is. A lot of people don't know that, how successful it is. The in, and individuals, youth who are adjudicated for sex offenses, ought not to be treated like an adult. The recidivism rate for an adult is much higher, and there's a there's whole more established assessment. patterns and a whole right. a bunch of different things we don't take in term, into into consideration. Sometimes yeah. the developmental process and the fact that sex is an integral part of the sustaining this human race, and so there's going to be naturally be curiosity there.
0: Well, I was thinking about the curiosity when just as we're talking about we're dealing with youth here and thinking how, for better or for worse, experimentation exploration is such a huge part of being a youth. And in, in any case, and and we see this, well, in a lot of adults who are in recovery, you know, they'll talk about like, I used every drug in high school and then settled on one. Or, and in other cases, people who are like, yeah, I, like, you know, used a whole bunch, you know, in my, in I, like, I drank a lot in high school and college and then stops because like I was done experimenting with it. That's not every case, obviously, but, but it happens sometimes because when you're young, you need to figure stuff out. And I think I hear you saying that, I mean, it's not a good thing, but kids explore and kids experiment and damage is done from that, no doubt, but it's not necessarily, it doesn't necessarily have to be a pattern or that pattern can be successfully interrupted.
1: Right. That's what I'm hearing. Yeah. Uh, Empathy is a big component of our program. Backing up a bit in the curriculum, we have this concept of healthy sexuality. Yeah. And I I have a question for the audience listening. Okay. What is healthy sexuality?
0: What is healthy sexuality indeed? And that's contingent on so many factors. Your body type, your belief system, your culture, your arousal
1: template as it is. The response that we give in the often specific world is that you start with what the end-all goal would be. And that's hard for a youth to even identify. But what do you desire in a relationship? And if you can answer first what you desire in a relationship, anything that you're doing sexually that supports that would be considered healthy. So that's where the gray area becomes, you know, all the more gray. Because my sexual desires for a relationship may look very different than yours, or the next person, or the next person. And, and so that is kind of the compass by which we decide, you know, is it, is it safe is it consensual obviously are key components to that but then aside from that is what you're doing and practicing today upholding that which you hope to achieve in the future in a relationship and if the answer is yes it's healthy but with the caveat that there is there are those you know three or four main things consent age safety is it violent those are the those are the kinds of concepts that we bring up with those that we work with with our clients
0: we're gonna to need to start to wrap this one up but why do you end up continuing in this work you know I mean you talked about having some you know discouraging days like all counselors and social workers have discouraging days uh when we just want to throw in the towel and you know start driving a bread truck uh but what brings you back from those days to to continue, to continue
1: in this work I have seen true healing occur the clarification process the apology letters Essentially, which are very strictly outlined and worded, and proofread, and draft one, draft two, draft three. There's no end to the amount of drafts that you might have depending on the feedback you get. But when when the individuals sit down together, and that perpetrator gets to read this letter to the victim, and you see and witness firsthand the healing that that can provide. The, or even if it's just the beginning stages of the healing process you know that what you're doing um what you're a part of is really worth it there are, there are like you said so many discouraging aspects of the job but uh it's a it's a constant it's constantly evolving as we're learning more and as the generations teach us more of what the need is the demand for more research becomes made known and we do respond I will say that's a that's a great thing about having a board that supervises what we do is that the demand to keep up with what's out there, what's available, how even in the past five years, the past five years in terms of what, how much more access we have to the different learning modalities when it comes to sex, affect our response to the individual who is struggling to navigate this very confusing time of life
0: (laughs) it's a very confusing time of life we should all well have mercy anyway on people in high school because it might be the worst time of life kind of a related question for the for the student who is still figuring out what they want to do with their their counseling their social work career or for the newly minted clinician who has their degree but hasn't quite landed in a specialty why would you persuade them or how would you persuade them to consider taking on the mantle of an offense-specific professional?
1: I don't know that I would use the word persuade, but just if you are listening and there's any amount of interest that you're taking into this, because I think everybody can relate to sex on some level. Yeah. <laughs> and the struggles that go with that as you develop as a person. Uh, but if you are listening and you're feeling, I definitely believe it's a calling. And so you will kind of know either fate will put it in your path or you will find that even in individual sessions, somehow someone brings up the topic of sex and you'll either feel comfortable going there with them or you will indirectly or directly navigate them away from the question. Probably not the field for you Mm -hmm. if you're not comfortable talking about it or you know answering questions that your client might have. But if you are interested in learning more, I definitely recommend talking with providers in your area. Like I said, every state has different guidelines. And the treatment, the SOMB is pretty standard across the board, to my knowledge and understanding, I'm trying to remember some of the resources that are available to providers that they can pay a fee, an annual fee for, and become have access to endless amounts of literature that's out there at SA. I believe it's A-T-S-A and I can't remember what it stands for. We may want to pause and like, look it up, make myself, (laughs) but anyway, um, but it's a resource and there are resources out there. And uh, I I would encourage anybody listening in that might be interested to talk with a treatment provider in their area and get, their take on, you know, this is my one lens. This is what I see. This is what I observe. And then I'm one treatment provider among millions. Colorado Springs has a high concentration of SOMB treatment providers. The state of Colorado does.
0: I would love to see more people doing this specific work as well. And because I'm thinking, actually, my my very first job in this field was working at a, at a residence for high school males who had committed offenses. Okay. And so this was actually my technical introduction to the field, also. Huh. And yeah it was disheartening to see the barriers that they ran into, and also really exciting when you got to see some of them succeed and really figure out how to be kind of healthy and how to kind of pick up their lives and and carry on with things and you know, I've also over the years worked with some some adults who had long ago committed an offense, but ten twenty years later, they're still carrying that label around Mm -hmm. and it's like a ball and chain around their neck and ankles and hands and they can't get work they can't get housing they can't go anywhere they can't they don't have any of the social mobility that anybody has they they are the literal untouchables in our society Mm -hmm. and it's infuriating because yes they did something heinous and horrible and they should be held responsible for that but that responsibility i don't think should damage the rest of their life Especially if there is, like you're you're saying, such potential for change
1: and for growth and for healing. So I think it'd be great to see more people involved in this work. Because our agency is a trauma-informed education agency, pro-trauma-informed, we make it a requirement when we've done uh, what's called the ACEs, the Adverse Childhood Experiences Survey, that we look at that assessment to determine if it makes sense to put the individual into individual therapy to work on the trauma concurrent with the offense specific because they really do go hand in hand and and you really when you're looking at the root of the problem with with someone who's really struggling with consent for example or age appropriate relationships there's a a deeper issue there more often than not, and so our agency really has gotten into the practice of saying, "Let's get the, let's get this person into individual therapy concurrent with the group therapy." We have seen faster, more success that way, especially given that two-year deadline. It used to be just a year and a half ago that you could file an extension up to three, four years, but the courts have made it a, a hard decision to cut it off at the two-year mark with the exception of maybe a couple weeks to finish up whatever's left. But um, there are many who have lost their deferred sentence and will remain on the registry for life.
0: Oh, but just because they don't make it in the Because in they the don't make years. it in time.
1: Wow. And in many cases, I am not, I'm not relinquishing all responsibility from the individual, but from what I've observed, oftentimes there's a lot of accountability not being taken. I'm part of the professionals involved who, are, who make some of this stuff impossible. At times, yeah, uh, I could get into all the details of what that looks like, and right. for time's sake, I will not for sure. But I'll say there's a whole other world of living in a group home, living in a a foster home, the disruption of the family system, like I had touched on before, yeah,
0: plays a huge
1: part. Yeah, well, there's
0: there's so many details and dynamics, and it it's like it's its own little culture here. So, thinking of that, and maybe we'll we'll go wrap up with this one. But is there a particular Microaggression or overt aggression that the average, maybe uninformed professional and layperson commits against a person who has committed a sex offense that
1: we can be aware of and hopefully work to avoid. I think I touched on it before personal bias. It's really easy when you hold that privilege of a credential to create an assumption that appears to make sense. I mean, at, at face value, it appears to make sense that increased pornographic viewing would very much result in reoffending. But that is not the case, according to the research. Mm-hmm. And sometimes we project our own internal belief systems about sex because we have all had some sexual experience, and it's not at all true. So assumptions are drawn. And then when we're looking at the family system, perhaps there's, a, there's too much judgment on, on the parents' who have brought this individual up and quote-unquote allowed them to do what they did. So there's a lot of speculation that then gets put on the parents and what they're doing right or wrong. And I've seen many cases where initially the perpetrator was removed from the home and then months after the, child, the other children in the home were, were also removed solely on the premise that there was a lack of supervision for this to occur. That's a whole other... Maybe we should edit that part out. Yeah, yeah, out. yeah. That's a whole other soapbox. Yeah. But anyways, but so, I, I guess that the, the the assumptions piece or the judgment piece, going right. back to the original question. Yeah,
0: so mind your biases, don't make assumptions. So kind of, the you know, back, back to basics in a way, but, you know, the basics are essentially essential
1: here with this. And consult, con- consult, consult. Always consult. Yes. When in doubt, consult. Always consult. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> That's why we have these multidisciplinary team meetings. Right and they exist for a reason and i always i always encourage people especially the student all of those activities that you're doing in school where you're given a case study and you collectively gather around a table and you decide what the best approach is do that for your actual clients yes because we don't do that enough we we automatically Make assumptions after we meet our client, and we start developing a treatment plan in our head of what it's going to look like without consulting first and making sure its best practices are upheld.
0: Yeah, now that I'm in private practice, that's the thing I miss most about working in an agency was having people to consult with and like somebody just over the cubicle wall. So all that to say, so so the world of working with offenders, or people who have committed offenses, sounds tumultuous and dynamic and. Like there's some there's some growth still to do, but also a lot of hope and a lot of a lot of real humans who are having victories every day as they overcome tremendous odds. Thank you for sharing a bit of your life and a bit of your work, and thank you, listener, for following along with us. Uh, do be sure and follow us on Facebook and on Twitter and on iTunes and SoundCloud. Uh, leave us reviews, leave us comments, and all that lovely stuff and we'll be back with more smart council we love your feedback so let's keep the conversation going follow smart council on facebook at at smart council podcast on twitter at, at smart council 601 and you can email your questions to smart council podcast at gmail.com
1: our theme music is by nate botsford our logo design is by thomas moore